Today we are continuing a series of messages entitled Friends Don't Let Friends. We started it last week and we're, we're talking about a, uh, uh, the nature of the kind of friendship that God desires for his people. And we all know friendship is, is valuable. Friendships are very important to us, aren't they? And, uh, uh, but, but, but I also believe, and I said this last week in the beginning of the, of the message series, and this may sound a little shocking to you if you didn't hear it, but I also believe that, that uh, friendship is one of the greatest idols of the American church. And I know that sounds so shocking to us because we think we understand the value of friendship or that, that sort of thing. But what I mean when I say that is that there are many, many Christians who have made relationships with their friends even more important than obeying God. And, and, and most of us, for example, most of us would not compromise our faith or our convictions for, for pretty much anything that the world has to offer. But there are many, many Christians who are willing to compromise what they believe if they think a friend is going to be upset with them. I'll give you a specific example. We'll obey God's commands without hesitation on just about anything in, the, in our lives, but we'll often ignore God's clear command to lovingly confront and have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ that's caught up in some sort of sin because we're afraid it will ruin our friendship. And the friendship begins in that moment to take priority over actually obeying God. And with that in mind, what we decided to do was we decided to look at what it means to be a true friend in biblical terms, not just in worldly terms, because how many of you know the world almost always defines things differently than what the Bible, how the Bible defines it. And so we want to know what it means to be a true friend in the eyes of God. What does God desire for our friendship? So last week, we talked about a tough one. It was a, it was a, maybe a cutting in some ways for some of us, but we talked about the fact that true friends don't let their friends gossip and complain. And we talked about why gossiping and complaining are so destructive. And uh, for example, complaining is a symptom of an ungrateful heart that I'm saying to God that what I have going on in my life, what you are doing in my life is not good enough. I want something better. That's what happened with the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. Now, I understand the wilderness was not the ideal place to be, yet God was providing for them manna every day to be able to sustain their life. And what was happening? They started complaining to God about the very blessing that he was sending to them, saying, this is what you've given to us but it's not good enough. We want something more. We wish we were back in Egypt where, he, where we had all the fish we wanted to eat, forgetting about the, the, the part that they were slaves. And so we talked about that. We talked about gossip and why all those, those things are so destructive. And we also talked about how to handle it when a brother or sister comes up to us and wants to gossip about someone or wants to complain about something. And if you remember, the first thing that we talked about was we need to apply the think principle. Anybody remember the think principle? We ask ourselves, we use those letters to remind us. We ask ourselves, is it true? Is it, is it, uh, now I've forgotten the second one. <laughs> I had it all in my head. Helpful is the word. Is it helpful? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspirational? Is it necessary? And is it kind? And if it doesn't meet that, that, uh, th those criteria, I don't need to be saying it. The second thing we, we were learned is that we should ask the person, have you talked to the person about this? Because Jesus taught us 
that if we have a problem, there's an issue between me and my brother or sister in Christ, that I need to go talk to them first. I need to deal with, deal with it with them directly. And if they won't receive it, if they won't, if it's some sort of correction, if they won't receive it, then I go get somebody else involved. But if they haven't talked with them about it, they have no business talking to me about it. And we, by the way, we also learned that anybody of your friends that come and talk to you about someone else, we'll talk about you to someone else. Guaranteed. And then the third thing we learn is that when they come, the, there's another question that we ask, and this is the one that shuts down a lot of stuff. We ask the question, may I quote you on this? Because there are many people that want to be hidden in the background. They want the secrecy, but we learned secrecy is not a friend of the truth. And so we, we talked about those things last week. And today we're going to be talking about another characteristic of what it means to be a true friend. And I think this one's going to be a lot easier for most of us because this doesn't require the same kind of moral courage and fortitude that it does to confront a, sin, a, a person who's sinning with gossip and, or complaining. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about the friendship principle that friends don't let friends give up. Friends don't let friends give up. Dante Bartel Rossetti, the famous 19th century poet and artist, was once approached by an elderly man. And this old fella brought with him some sketches and some drawings that he wanted Rossetti to look at and tell him if they were any good, or at least if they showed any potential talent. Well, Rossetti looked at them over, looked over them carefully. And, and after the first one, few of them, he knew that they were really worthless, showing uh, uh, not the least sign of talent. And, and Rossetti was a very kind man. And, 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 and so he told the elderly gentleman just as gently as possible that the pictures were without much value, showed little talent. He was sorry, but he just, he couldn't lie to him about uh, uh, these, these things to the man. Well, the visitor was very disappointed, but seemed to expect Rossetti's judgment. And he didn't apologize for taking up his time, but he asked him, would you please just look at a few more drawings? These are done by a young art student. Would you look at these? Well, Rossetti looked over the second batch of sketches and immediately he began to be enthused over the talent that they revealed. He said, ah, now, now these are good. The, the young, this young man, whoever he is, has great talent. He should be given every help and every encouragement in his career as an artist. He has a great future if he will work hard and stick with it. Well, Rossetti could see that this old fellow was deeply moved. So he asked him, who, who is this fine young artist? Is it your son? Them old fellows said sadly, no, it's me 40 years ago. If only I'd heard your praise then. You see, I got discouraged and gave up too soon. You know, there is a distorted view of Christian spirituality that says that Christians will never struggle in their faith and, then, and that they'll never ever be discouraged or disheartened. But I think anybody that's here that's, that's walked with the Lord for more than 10 minutes knows that that's a, a very distorted view of reality, uh, that, that that's somebody that's completely out of touch with reality because there are many, many things in life. There are many events, many uh, uh, things that we suffer through, different things that are done to us or happen in our life that tend to discourage our hearts. And a sense of discouragement and a lack of perseverance in pursuing God's vision for our lives often leads a Christian that's full of potential and 
full of the of the 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 plan of God and there's wonderful things that God wants to do. They're full of that potential and that discouragement and the lack of perseverance causes that person to settle for a life of mediocrity. The writer of Hebrews tells us, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, when a friend begins to show signs of giving up in their pursuit of God's plan for their life, when a friend begins to show signs of settling for mediocrity, when a friend begins to show, show signs of settling into a comfort zone, then a, a true spiritual friend has a responsibility to find ways to spur that person on because friends don't let friends give up. Now, you can't make them do anything, but you don't let them just wander off and just give up without without you encouraging them to keep going. A true spiritual friend seeks to find ways to encourage the person who's about to give up too early. Because the truth is, very often in our lives, when we when we get reached that point where we're about to give up, unfortunately, if we didn't, if we would just hang on a little longer, the victory often is just around the corner. So we have questions that we need to ask ourselves, and we're going to talk about today. How does a person help a friend? How do we spur one another on to love and to good works like the Bible says? And we need to ask ourselves, am I an encourager or a discourager? How can I be a person who gives strength to the other people around me? How can I become an habitual encourager? Well, I'm going to give you some some characteristics of an encourager, some things that I think that we should pursue in our lives if we want to be this kind of person. And the first thing is that an encourager stays connected with God's people. We read it. It's a famous verse. I know you've heard it many times. Hebrews 10, 25. And let us not de- neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. I want you to notice there in that verse, it connects the idea of meeting together with encouraging one another. It says, don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another. So, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So we know, and I think most of us intuitively know this if you've never thought about it before, but we come together to be encouraged. Our worship service is a source of encouragement. Now that's not the main purpose of it. The main purpose is to worship and to glorify Jesus. But a secondary uh, aspect of gathering together, of worshiping together, of coming into this place together, is the fact that we are able to be encouraged by each other. We're able to be there for one another. We're able to pray with one another. We're able to, to give words of comfort, encouragement to one another. And, and our worship service is a source of encouragement for us. And when we separate ourselves from the body of Christ, what we're doing is we separate ourselves from one of the most important means of encouragement that God provides. And when a person pulls themselves out of fellowship with the church, I'm here to tell you, I've seen it over and over and over and over again, they will inevitably battle with discouragement. I know everybody here remembers the what it was like going through the COVID-19 pandemic and all the hysteria and everything that was going on. And, and uh, I, I, it's, it's still, I look back at it almost with disbelief, 
I'm, I'm, I was, I was very surprised at, at how many, even people that, that, have, that I love that have great faith that how they were just gripped with fear and panic during that time, especially early on when we didn't really understand it. We didn't really know what was going on. We didn't know, you know, what was happening or, or how to deal with it and that sort of thing. And, and if you remember at the very beginning, and I think it was in the month of March, they just shut everything down. It was the weirdest thing. Uh, early on in that state, in that, during that time period, I remember having to drive to South Haven one day for something, and I'm driving on Interstate 55 towards South Haven, and as far as I could see, there there was just no cars. It was it was like The Walking Dead, you know. You know, as like I'm waiting for the zombies to show up. It was just so bizarre, you know. And 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 if you remember. Everything shut down and we, we even as a church, we stopped meeting together in person for, for that one month, uh, which by the way is something I'm here to tell you will never happen again. We will never do that again. Uh, never again will, will, will we ever forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we believe that we serve a God who is greater than anything. And, 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 you know, here's the thing, the part, and I'm getting really sidetracked here, but when all that was going on and, and we're afraid of catching it, we're, well, what I might die. And I just keep thinking to myself, kept thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute. If we know Christ, I thought to die was gain. Uh, that's, that's not a bad thing, right? Am I the only one here? Okay. I better move on. Um, but, uh, but anyway, we did in, for about a month. And then we, after that month, during that month, we did, we recorded and all the worship team would come together. We would record services and play it on Sunday. And, and then after that, we, we opened it up. Uh, for for the live services again, and that's really when we got the live stream going. But here's all that to say this. By the end of that one month, I was absolutely shocked at how much that separation from the body of Christ affected me. I don't know if anybody remembers that. I mean, when the time came, I could not wait to get together again. You know, it was the thing that we we take for granted so often, you know, this gathering together because here in this nation, we don't have to worry about it. We can do it freely. And so we sort of take it for granted. But when we didn't have that for that month, all of a sudden I began to realize how important this time together is for me personally. And I, and I know if it's true for me, it's true for you because we're, we're the same in a lot of ways, but I, I needed the strength and the encouragement that you provide. And I didn't get that during that time. I needed to see your faces. I needed to be able to, to be in contact with you. I needed to worship with you. I, I needed, frankly, what the live stream could never give me. Now, the live stream is wonderful and the live stream is great. There are people today that are watching the live stream because they can't get out. And that's why we have it. And, and, and I know God uses it and other people may may tune into that. But but watching a, a church service on a live stream to me and you maybe you've seen this analogy, but it's a lot like watching a video of, of a fireplace on TV. How many of you know you've seen during Christmas? They have those those fireplace things and it's beautiful. Here's the thing with those videos, you can see the flames, but you can't feel the heat. And that's that's the thing about the live stream, why it's wonderful for those who need it, but it can never replace this. Because when you gather with the people of God, you not only see it, but you can you can feel the warmth of the body. 
There's something about this coming together. I needed God's people surrounded me and, and I needed the warmth of that fire that, that only, that only burns when his people gather together. And, and, and that's what I, one of the things that was such a, a great lesson, so shocking to me at the end of that month, how important this was for me personally. You know, I've often talked with discouraged people who, who have stopped attending church or, or they just rarely attend church. And when I talk to them, usually they don't realize that they set themselves up for the discouragement and the loneliness from which they suffer because they pulled themselves out of the one place where they could find strength in the body of Christ. We come together to be encouraged. But you know what? That's not all. Because that's a very consumeristic mindset to say, well, I'm going to come together because I need people to encourage me. That's a very, if that's all it is, that's pretty self-centered to say, well, I'm doing this because I need it. But we also come together to be an encouragement. We come together to be an encouragement. When we come together, the goal is not just to receive encouragement, but it is to be an encourager. And, and if we think that this gathering together is, is all about, you know, just checking into service once a week or twice a week and singing a few songs and hearing a, you know, um, a sermon of, you know, 30, 45, maybe sometimes a little bit longer. Sorry about that. Um, then if that's what we think it's all about, we're missing the point. The, uh, uh, and a spirit of consumerism runs counter to everything God calls us to, to, to be and to do. So if you come to, not just with encouragement, if you come the, together in the church and your only purpose is to say, feed me, do something for me, give something to me, then you are a consumer and that is not what God has for you. Now there are times and seasons in life when you have nothing to give and all you can do is receive. But the whole point of this is that we are to not just receive encouragement, but we are to give it as well. When we come to church, this is what we have to understand. When we come to church, we are all part of what God wants to do to help people and to touch the lives of people around us. It's not just the pastor up behind the pulpit. It's not just the worship team. It's not just the people involved in the behind the scenes technical ministry. It's not just the people that are serving in the nursery or are doing ch kids church or anything like that. It's every one of us here. We're all called to, to be the hands of God and to reach out and to do what God wants to do and help be his hands reached out and extended to other people around us. I, I want to know if there's anybody here. I'm going to help illustrate this. Anybody here? I don't know. It's not as big as it used to be. Anybody here a NASCAR fan? Yeah, I kind of had a feeling. I don't know why, brother. I just, I just knew. We got a couple of them here. Uh, but, but here's the thing. When, when one of those cars pull, pulls into the, into the pit, uh, and everybody know, let's make sure everybody knows what the pit is, right? That's when the, during the race, when the car pulls in, they get refueled, all that sort of thing. That's the pit area. So when one of those cars pulls into the pit, and this pit crew jumps out, they run out there, and they begin to just swarm all over that car. They change tires if they need to be changed. They fill the vehicle with fuel. They clean the windshield. They do minor repairs. They do all kinds of stuff to make sure that car is running at full capacity and at the at, at optimum uh, uh, speed and doing it. It's just running. It's just humming like a machine. You know, they just do whatever needs to be done and they do it together as a team. 
Each person has a job to do and they depend on each other to accomplish that task. Now, I want you to picture a little bit different scenario here. Picture a car in a NASCAR race and that car pulls into the pit area, but there's no pit crew there. And the driver has to jump out of the car and he has to wash the windows and he has to uh, fuel up the car. He has to change the tires. He has to do any kind of minor repairs that need to be done. And and he does it all by himself. I'm here to tell you that car is not going to win any races. Or let's say another scenario. This one's probably this is probably more like the way a lot of churches like to try to function. Let's say that the the guy who owns the, the race car. The guy that owns the racing team employs only one guy to be the pit crew. Now that guy knows all there is to know about NASCAR race cars. He knows everything there is to know. And he's expected to wash the window. He's expected to fuel up the car. He's expected to change the tires, etc. all by himself while the driver sits in the driver's seat. Well, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Or worse yet. Picture the owner of the car looking down from the skybox and he sees a pit full of of people that he has hired, that he is paying to be on the pit crew. And the car pulls in and and only a few of, of the crew members came out to work on the car when it came to the pit, while the rest of the crew members sat back in their chairs and criticized the active team members for doing things the way that they don't like them being done. Well, Well, the owner would fire those guys. He wants his car and his driver to to pull into a pit where everyone is going to get involved and everyone is going to do their part. And you know, I ask myself, I wonder how comfortable our owner is with pulling pulling lives into our church. Does he see a partial team trying to do the work of equipping and encouraging people? Or does he see an entire body of people that are there to serve the people around them? We're supposed to be spurring one another on. That's what Hebrews says. But in order to, to do that, we must be connected to other believers in order to spur them on toward loving good works. If I'm never with you, if I don't gather in this place, if I'm never involved in your life, if, if I don't come to church, how in the world can I ever know you well enough to spur you on when you need it? Here's the second characteristic of an encourager. That is, an encourager speaks carefully. An encourager speaks carefully. Proverbs 12, 18. Thoughtless words can wound as deeply as any sword, but wisely spoken words can heal. Proverbs 12, 25. Worry weighs a person down, an encouraging word cheers a person up. Proverbs 15, 23, everyone enjoys a fitting reply. It is wonderful to say the right thing at the right time. Oh my goodness, isn't it wonderful when you say the right thing at the right time? How many of you have ever been there where you said the wrong thing at the wrong time? Anybody? Anybody here you said the right thing at the wrong time? I've, I've done that too. I've been, I've been times when I was like, man, I know God has something he wants me to say. And I say it and God's saying, no, not yet, not yet. And I just do it anyway. And I just get ahead and I just, you just muck up, muck up the whole works, you know. An encourager speaks words of encouragement, uh, of appreciation, of support and respect. William Arthur Ward said this. I want to give you this quote. He said, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. 
encourage me and I will not forget you. An encourager builds up people with their words. Now, that doesn't mean that it's flattery. It doesn't mean you're always saying, you know, nice things. Because sometimes an encourager says, hey, I, I see you starting to struggle here. Let's not, let's not go that way. I want to help you. It calls them out on it. But a person who is continually criticized eventually becomes good for nothing because the criticism destroys his or her motivation. You know, the thing is, we just have a tendency to not take our words as seriously as we should. You know, we say things like, oh, it's just words. How many of you heard this one? Say it with me as soon as you recognize it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Isn't that such a cute poem, but so stupid? It is so wrong. How I many of you know words wound deeply? And sometimes they're wounds that take a lot longer to heal than a physical wound. Our words have real power. And because they have real power, therefore, they have real consequences. Let me give you a few kind of silly examples of the importance of choosing your words wisely. I found some of these from the marketing world. How many of you know Gerber Foods? Gerber Baby Supplies, that sort of thing. Well, Gerber, when they first started selling baby food in Africa, what they did is they used the same packaging as they do here in the U.S. And, and you know, on the package, you got the Gerber Baby on there. You got this picture of a cute baby on the label, right? Well, later they started marketing it, but they weren't selling. They couldn't figure out why. But later they found out that in Africa, that companies routinely put pictures on the label of what is inside the jar because there are a lot of people who don't know how to read. Imagine why they didn't sell. It's like, oh, those Americans, they, they're really messed up, you know. They're eating babies over there. They got some factory canning babies. What's going on here? Or, or when Coca-Cola first began to ship their product to China, they, they named the product, they just put together some Chinese symbols that when it was pronounced, sounded like Coca-Cola. They thought that'd be a good idea. Hey, that, you know, that way when they say it, it'll sound like Coca-Cola. The only problem was that the characters they used when the Chinese person re- saw it, it meant bite the wax tadpole. Mmm, sounds delicious to me. You know, they later changed it, by the way, to characters that mean happiness in the mouth. Much, much better idea. When Pepsi started marketing its products in China a few years back, they, their slogan at the time, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, the slogan at the time was, Pepsi brings you back to life. Anybody remember that slogan? Well, they just translated that slogan into Chinese very literally, as literally as they could, but the, the, the slogan in Chinese, the Chinese person read it, it really meant Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. <laughs> it's like, well, I, you know, I don't know if I want to try that or not. Or Coors, its slogan at the time was turn it loose. And they started marketing in Spanish and they used that slogan, but... What it meant to them was suffer from diarrhea. It's like, woohoo. So it's a great, it's a great marketing tool for, for laxatives, but not for Coors. Or there's the Chevy Nova. You probably heard this one because when you say they just market it as the Nova, but in Spanish, Nova means no go. It does not go. 
That's not what you're looking for in a car, right? Now, those are serious. Those are, are not so serious ideas or examples, but the truth is we need to seriously consider the consequences of our words because our words do have impact on others. We need to think about what we say because we may not be communicating what we think we're communicating. We know that our words have power. Our words have the power to discourage or to encourage. Our words have the power to give life or to kill. Our words have, can encourage someone to fulfill their potential or they can cause them to give up without even trying. Our words can, our words have tremendous power for both good and for evil. I, I mean, I, re, I remember a time in my life when I was a young man before, actually before I even graduated high school, before I'd even gone to Bible college, but it was, it was my senior year in high school. I had, gotten saved at summer camp that year, felt called to ministry. God filled me with the spirit, but, but I really struggled with a lot of issues in my own life. And, and I was really struggling. I did not believe that God could really use me. I, I, I didn't have even confidence that God wanted to use me. And that I was listening to the lies of the enemy was what was going on. And I was wrestling with a lot of issues like that. And, and one day I remember I started having this phone conversation with my mom. I was at home. She was at work. And, and the conversation actually was, was more confrontational than anything else. We were sort of arguing over it, but I was getting upset and, and angry about something about this conversation. I don't even know what it was about. I can't tell you what the conversation, what it was we were talking about. But I just remember this during that conversation after a very short time on the phone, my mom, I believe it was a gift of discernment that the Holy Spirit gave her in the moment that she she suddenly just she realized that what we're talking about was not really the issue that we were needed to be talking about. And so she just suddenly just kind of paused in the conversation and said something along the lines, like it's probably not an exact quote, but something very close to this, where she just said, David, what's really bothering you? And I remember in that moment, all of a sudden, I just broke. I just began to weep. And I began to tell her all the things that were going through my mind and, and how I didn't think God wanted to use me and he couldn't use me because I was nothing. I was a nobody, which by the way, later on, you begin to study scripture, you find out that those are exactly the people God likes to use. And, and I remember she heard me go on for a little bit and she said, she finally stopped me. She said, oh, David, oh, David, you have so much going for you and God is going to use you. That's all she said. It wasn't a deep or profound statement. You know, it wasn't a pithy, converse, uh, pithy statement in the midst of this conversation. It, was, it wasn't some great theological revelation. It was just a simple statement of encouragement. And those few simple words over the years have had an enormous impact on me. And, and if I've, my life has touched anybody else, then those words have had an impact on the lives of other people as well. Words are powerful. God takes our words seriously, and so should we. Here's a, the third characteristic of an encourager. That is that an encourager sees the potential in people. A man said this, and I'm not going to tell you his name because I don't know how to pronounce it. I'll just be honest with you. But he said, treat a man as he appears to be and you make him worse. But treat a man as, as if he already were what he potentially could be and you make him what he should be. A real friend 
always looks beyond the obvious and sees the deeper potential within other people. You know, too often what we do is we look at people around us and we expect the worst from them. Some, some of us just have that, that sort of bent within us and we, we expect the worst because then we, you know, we feel like we're, we're not disappointed as much. But, but we need to understand when it comes to friendship, I, I have to, when I look at you, I have to begin to believe that God ha- can do greater things in you and through you than I can even see. So uh, instead of expecting the worst, a friend sees people through God's eyes and recognizes the amazing potential that God has planted within them. And what is that potential? Well, first of all, even if they have zero talents whatsoever, the potential that God has planted in them is Jesus Christ in the spirit of God. If he's in them, then the potential is limitless. Think about some of the people you, that we look up to and we think of great men of faith and people of faith in the Bible. Look at Moses. Moses was nothing more than a murderer and a failure in Egypt. That's all he was, and yet God saw him as the deliverer of his people. Gideon, Gideon, I love his story because he was just this scared, insignificant little man in, this, in his family, in his tribe. And yet God saw him. What did the angel say when he first saw Gideon? He appeared to him and he said, hey, mighty man of valor to this little insignificant pipsqueak who's literally hiding in a wine press. Rahab, well, she was a prostitute. And yet God in- included her in Jesus' family tree. David, King David, the great man of God, he, he had an affair and was an overt murderer. He had his friend, one of his closest allies, intentionally killed on the battlefield just to cover his own sin. And yet God saw him as a man after his own heart. Jonah, he ran from God. He knew what God called him to do, and he said, I'm not doing it. He ran in disobedience. And not only that, when you read the book of Jonah, you'll discover that he was also a man of deep prejudice. He really didn't. The reason he ran is because, and you can read this at the end of Jonah, the reason he ran is because Jonah said to God, I knew that if they repented, you'd have mercy on them, and I didn't want you to have mercy on them. I wanted them wiped out. That's how much he hated them. And yet God saw him as the man he could use to turn an entire city around. Peter, well, Peter denied Christ. Yet God saw him as the leader of a fledgling, fledgling church. Paul, Paul persecuted the people of God. He rounded them up and brought them back to Jerusalem to be tried and imprisoned and even oversaw the execution of some of them. And yet God saw him as a special instrument to reach non-Jewish people. Then there are people that we don't even know their name, like, like a little boy who was sitting there listening to Jesus teach, and he had this, this little boy's lunch of, of, of a few loaves and fish, and, 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 and that's all he was, and everybody else saw him as just a little boy with a small lunch, and yet Jesus saw him as the one person who had what was needed in order to feed thousands of people. If we love people we will begin to see them as God intends them to be, not just simply as they are now. A friend always expects the best and is willing to gently push his or her friend to reach toward their full potential in Christ and their full calling in God.
A real friend is always looking for ways to encourage his or her friends to stretch. To look at them and say, hey, God has more for you. Don't settle for where you are. There's more. A real friend does that. Ken Langley wrote this. I want to read it to you. He, he wrote about the time. He said, my, my 10-year-old son was helping me paint the laundry room. How many of you ever had your kids help you with things? You know what it's like. I, I remember when I was, when Aaron was very young, she was like two or three and I'd be folding towels or something and she wanted to help me fold. Well, how many of you know that everything she folded, I had to refold, right? And so, by the way, I figured out a system on that one. If you ever need this, I'm just going to give it to you free of charge. I'm not even going to patent this. What I did was I put the laundry basket on the other side of the room and I'd fold a towel. And so she could help me. I'd say, can you go get daddy another one? Well, by the time she got over there and got that and came back, I had that towel folded. So then when it was time for her to go to get one for herself, she'd be bringing it back to me. It worked perfectly, by the way. Just so you know, I'm a genius. So um, anyway, I'm kidding. But anyway, let me start again what he said. My 10-year-old son was helping me paint the laundry room. I brushed, he rolled. When he disappeared to get a Coke, I re-rolled where he painted. I didn't mind this, but I did mind his repeated efforts to reach higher than he should. Standing on tiptoe, arms straight up, wobbly, trying to control the roller heavy with paint. Let daddy get the high stuff, I said. I'm afraid you'll drop the roller or you'll lose your balance and fall into the paint. I delivered this message several times when I had to leave the room briefly, returning to find Justin once again stretched ambitiously but precariously with a shaky and ineffectual roller on his fingertips. Justin, I barked. I told you to stop stretching. I'll get that. Okay, Daddy, I won't do it again. In the silence that followed, he wrote, I wondered how many times over the years I've given my children that message. Stop stretching. How often have I said, you can't do this. It's too hard. Let me do it. Don't be unrealistic. Don't reach so high. Too often, I'm afraid. And now I think that I think about it, I'm, I kind of hope they weren't listening. You know, how often do we send the message to our friends that mediocrity is good enough? How often do we send the message to our friends that that they could never do something big for God. Oh, yeah, that's a crazy dream. Who, 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 what makes you, who do you think you are that you could do that? A real friend is always encouraging his or her friends to stretch, even though stretching is uncomfortable. A real friend is always looking for ways to help keep his or her friends from slipping into a deadly comfort zone. Here's the fourth characteristic of an encourager. That is that an encourager sets the pace. James Tom said this, if you try to improve one person by being a good example, you're improving too. If you try to improve someone without being a good example, you won't improve anybody. Becoming a friend that doesn't let a friend give up their walk with God adds a level of accountability in our lives. In other words, if you want to spur people on in their church attendance, you better be faithfully attending church yourself. If you want to spur people on to serve, 
then you'd better be serving yourself. If you want to spur people on to discover greater intimacy with Christ, then you'd better be pressing into Christ yourself. If you want to spur people on to live in a way that honors Jesus, then you'd better be living in a way that honors Jesus. If you want to help people stretch toward reaching their potential, you'd better be stretching yourself. How many of you ever heard that phrase? I know you've heard this. This is so, so common. Everybody's heard the, the phrase. Actions speak louder than words. You ever heard that one? Right. That's so true. And there's, it's never truer than when we're trying to be the kind of person who spurs his or her friends on toward loving involvement in the body of Christ and on in their walk with Christ and to greater things with Jesus. If we want to, to encourage people to get involved in serving others when we're not involved in service, if we want to encourage people to press into Jesus and know him more intimately and we're not doing that ourselves, we need to know that our words in that instance will be powerless and ineffective. They won't hear us. Why? Because our actions are too loud. You know, Matthew 7, 20, Jesus said, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. If your actions don't match up with your words, then you have no credibility and therefore no influence. If we want to become encouragers, Encouragers, people who spur people on to reach their God-given potential, the place to start is by looking at ourselves and making sure that we're doing what we're trying to encourage other people to do. Ask yourself, am I actively serving my church and my community or am I sitting on the sidelines and waiting for other people to do what needs to be done? Am I stretching to reach my potential in Christ or have I settled into a comfortable place that's really going nowhere? You see, a real friend leads by example. You know, the truth is real friendship looks very different than what most of us picture in our culture today. Because most of us in our culture today, we think of friendship as just this makes me feel good and, you know, I just never, never approaches anything uncomfortable or anything like that. But a real friend challenges his or her friends to never settle for good enough. A real friend never settles for mediocrity or laziness in his or her own life and always dares his or her friends to stretch past what they think they can do or what they think they can become. A real friend recognizes that, that when God enters the picture, nothing is impossible and no one is insignificant. That's so powerful. That if God is in the situation, if my friend comes to me and says, man, I, I, I feel like I just want to try to do this for God. Instead of saying, whoa, settle down there. You know, I don't know. That's a little bit big. That's beyond you. Instead of that, we need to begin to realize, wait a minute. If God is in this, then nothing is impossible and nobody's insignificant. A real friend speaks words of life to his or her friend that is struggling to breathe spiritually and is about to give up. A real friend doesn't ignore the dark night of the soul that a friend is going through simply because it's uncomfortable to talk about or you simply just don't know what to say because that's what a lot of times we do when we have a friend that's hurting. We just don't want to even approach it. We just avoid this subject. We don't talk to them because we don't know what to say. And let me tell you this, you don't have to have the right words to say. The most important thing is to let them know, hey, I see this pain. I see what's going on. I'm here I'm here, I'm here for whatever you need. And today, my challenge for you is to think through about 
how you can be an encourager in the lives of people around you. Now, for some people, it just comes naturally. But for others, we have to work a little harder. We have to be much more intentional about it. And that's what I'm challenging you to do today. I'm challenging you to think about it. And, and, and typically, the most important way that we do this is through our words. Uh, I, I want you to think about this. Because as we said, our words are so powerful. And we need to ask ourselves the question, how am I going to use my words? Watch, watch this video, and then we're going to close the service out. You don't have a ton of things in common with God. But there is one thing. You speak. So does he. God spoke light into existence with his words. I wonder what you could speak into existence with your words this week. I wonder what kind of love you could speak into your marriage that feels like it's in neutral. I wonder what kind of courage you could speak into the heart of a child who's hurting. I wonder what kind of peace you could speak into your broken friendship. What kind of hope you could speak into your own weary soul. I want you to know that the most powerful words you're gonna speak this week is probably not gonna be on a stage or a conference call or closing the deal with a client that you want. The most powerful words you're gonna speak is probably just with one or two people listening, maybe zero. It's totally possible that the most powerful sentence you'll say this week is a thoughtful text message that you send to a friend who's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the apology email that you finally get the courage to send. It's the whispered prayers through tears in the middle of a dark night. Powerful words aren't just for preachers who stand behind pulpits. They're for parents who stand next to bunk beds spouses who share hopes and dreams during pillow talk and not criticism for teenagers who stand up to bullies stand up for the uncool kids your tongue is so small but so powerful your tongue is telling a story What story is your tongue what story is your tongue telling? That, there's a line in that video that uh, gets me every time I hear it when he says, "The most powerful words you speak may be words to your child at a bedside." See, it's not coming up with the great, powerful saying. It's not sounding eloquent that matters. It's about being there when you know somebody needs you. As it said, it's maybe sending a text at just the right moment, sending a card to someone, giving them a phone call. Maybe it's that, as it said, the email of apology. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what it is, but, but we know this. Your words are powerful. Your words are powerful. How will you use them? Will you use them to encourage people around you? Will you use them to spur people on? Or will you use them to, to beat people down so that you feel more comfortable that more people are at your level of mediocrity? 
Your words are powerful. How will you use them? Because your, your life either encourages or discourages your friends. Your life either inspires your friends to stretch and to grow and to trust God more, or it guides them into apathy and selfishness. I think the question we all have to ask ourselves is simply this. What kind of friend do I want to be? Ask yourself, is there someone around you that needs a real friend? Someone that just doesn't have anybody that cares for them. Somebody that maybe even you're uncomfortable around, but you realize, man, that is somebody who really needs somebody to speak words of life into them. Words of encouragement. Words of hope. Words of love. Words of truth. Is there someone who needs your encouragement to stretch toward their God-given potential? Maybe maybe they've tried to do something for God and they were beaten down, maybe even by church people, and, and they need somebody to step in and say, hey, hey, let's not give up on what God can do. Is there someone you can encourage with your life and with your words? I guarantee you that, that you know someone, maybe even multiple people, who need to hear your words of life and encouragement. And they need them now because they're about to give up too soon. I'm sure of that because, listen, here's what I know about us Christians is we're really good at wearing the mask and we can come into church and pretend like everything's okay when we're just dying on the inside. And, and I'm here to tell you there's somebody you know that needs to hear from you today. They need to hear from you this week. They need to hear from you multiple times. They need your encouragement because they're about to give up because they say, I don't know what else to do. And they're going to give up too early. Don't Just don't let them. Don't let them go on their own. Be a true, godly friend. Listen to the voice of the Spirit when He whispers in your ear and He lays someone in your heart. I know that happens to us all the time where all of a sudden some name or some person comes to my mind. Just realize that that's probably not random. That's probably the Spirit of God trying to say to you, hey, you need to reach out to this person. You need to pray for this person. Maybe they need a word of encouragement from you. And, 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 and if they get a call or a text or something from you, maybe that's what they need at that moment and you just didn't even realize it. It's happened to me so many times that people have spoken words of encouragement to me when I didn't think anybody else knew. You may, may not be able to see what's going on in their heart, but you know what? God can. And He will use you to encourage them if you will just simply listen and obey. Today, I just challenge you. Be the kind of friend that doesn't let friends give up. Amen. Would you bow your head? Father, as we come into your presence, that's the kind of friend we want to be because, Lord God, we believe that's the kind of friend you want us to be. That's the kind of friend you are for us. You're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're a friend that, that it was willing to lay down your life for us. You're a friend that speaks truth to us even when it's uncomfortable. You're a friend that, that encourages us and, and says, keep going, don't give up, I'm right here, I'll never leave you, I'll never abandon you. That's the kind of friend you are toward us. And so God, we want to reflect that and we want to be that sort of friend. Now God, this whole idea of encouragement, you very well know, Lord, that that comes easily to some and to others. It's not something that we do naturally, but God, I pray you'd help us you would develop this in us by your Spirit, that we'd become aware of the power of our words 
And God, in, in that moment when we feel compelled to say something that we think is right and we're just so convinced about it, but, but uh, we, we, if we stop and think about it, that it would be discouraging, that it would beat this person down. God, pray God in that moment we would just be silent and wait for you to open the door because we want to speak the right words, but God, we also want to speak it at the right time. God, help us to be that kind of a friend. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that's on the other end of this spectrum that's they're here and they're just so discouraged and maybe nobody knows it and they're just hurting. And I pray, God, that they would know today that they're not alone. That first of all, you're with them. But second of, God, second of all, God, I pray that they would know that this church is filled with people who love them and care for them, who see the best in them who believe that God wants to do great things in them and through them. And I pray, God, that today would be a day of encouragement for them. That they walk out of this building with their heads a little bit higher and their, their heart a little bit lighter. That they would just know, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it because I now I know I'm not trying to do this alone. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. I want to start there. I wonder if there's anybody here who would just simply say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I've, been, I've just been just discouraged, been hurting. I've been wondering why, why, why even keep trying? And maybe, maybe it's not quite that severe, but, but that's you today. And you'd say, Pastor, I just need some encouragement from the Spirit of God. Will you slip your hand up right where you are so I can pray for you? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So many more hands than I ever expected. Church, I'm here to tell you, you can make such a difference if you listen to the Spirit of God because there's so many people around you that you don't even know. Some, some people, I'll just be honest, some people I had no idea. I was, I was surprised to see them raise their hands. I'm not judging them for that. I, I'm glad that they were honest because now I can encourage them. But I want, I want to start by praying for those people. And I want you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I come to you right now. And God, I thank you for those that were honest enough to simply say, you know what, I'm hurting, I'm discouraged. Maybe even feel like giving up. And I pray, Jesus, that right now, that they would sense the touch of God, that they would be encouraged deep in their spirit, knowing that they're not alone, that, that they're not facing this alone, even though, and, and when they feel alone, to recognize that that's just the, the enemy lying to them and trying to tell them, oh, you're never going to make it, you're alone, nobody else cares, nobody else is doing anything. But God, I pray that they would look, open, lift their eyes off of themselves and off to the circumstances, and they would see you and remember that you promised to never leave them and never forsake them, and that you are right there with them and when they weep from the pain, you weep with them. And God, I pray you would raise up somebody in their life, a friend, a godly friend, who would listen to your voice, who would be a, a source of encouragement to them. And Lord, I pray that you would also give them the courage to be able to go to someone that they love, someone they respect, someone that they know loves you, Jesus. And they just be honest and say, hey, Pray for me. I've just been feeling discouraged. And that's all they have to say. They don't have to say anything more. But God, I pray that you would use that person to be a voice of encouragement to them. 
And with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I wonder if there's anybody here and say, Pastor, I want to be that kind of a friend. I want to be the kind of a friend that, that doesn't just say, write people off and say, well, you know, they make their own choices. If that's what they want to do, it's their life. Let them do it. But a friend that's, that pursues them and says, I, I'm not going to let you give up without a fight. I'm not going to just let you walk away. I'm not going to let you give up too soon. But I'm going to be here to encourage you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to help you any way I can. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me because I want God to transform me into that kind of a friend. That is so Christ-like. Yeah, boy, their hands, put your hand up if that's you. Their hands all over the place. Oh, I so want to be that kind of a man of God. I want to be the kind of man that when people leave the room after a conversation with me, they feel like, you know what? I, God could do anything in my life. God could do anything through me. I want to be that kind of man. I know you do too. Father, you saw those hands. It was, if it wasn't unanimous, it was close to unanimous. God, that's who we want to be. And Lord, if we'll be that as, a, as, an in, as individuals, then we certainly will be that as a group. And I pray, God, that you'd help us. Give us hearts that are sensitive to the hurting around us and those that are discouraged around us and help us have sensitive ears, spiritually speaking, so that we can hear your voice. And Lord, that when you lay someone on our heart, we won't just let it go or say, well, I wonder what they're going, what's going on in their life or, or just think it's a random thought or a random memory. But God, I pray that in that, in that moment, we realize that that very well could be the Spirit of God speaking to us. And Lord, that we would take initiative and we'd call them or text them or send them a card or, or visit them or whatever, it may, whatever we may be able to do that will reach out to them. And God, in that, so, in that way, I pray that we would become a source of strength and encouragement to the people around us. And as we do that, God, as we become less self-focused and more others-focused, the great side benefit of that, Lord, is that, is that you then encourage us and you strengthen us. So Lord, just have your way in us. Make us the kind of people you want us to be and help us to be the kind of friends that just don't let friends give up. We give you praise for all of it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.